query is recorded and broadcast on Snag's territory, and I would like to say a big thank you to the land for supporting our work and the connections that are taking place here. You're listening to CJLY 93.5 FM in Nelson. The next hour is Query. It's the queerest hour on Cooney Co-op Radio. (laughs) And I'm here, your host, Axel, with a very special guest today. It is Indigo, who is joining us all the way from Winchester in England through the magic of the internet and radio making. Indigo is a human who's very near and dear to my heart and holds much wisdom on disability, justice, and dreaming crip futures and being a very talented artist and a very thoughtful thinker. And Indigo is joining us on Query today to have a conversation about what we can learn from disabled folks in the time of COVID-19. What are some considerations for all of us uh, to have around how we can use this global health crisis as a moment of awakening and dreaming new possibilities and futures that include and center disabled people um, in the magical revolution that we're in right now. So welcome, Indigo, to the show. Thank you very much. Gosh, that all sounds pretty dreamy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So to start out, um, Indigo, can you tell us a little bit about what like different models of thinking about disability um, and how those things are considered like in dominant paradigms versus like some more radical or social, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Social constructionist kind of paradigms? Yeah. um, So I suppose like the beginning is that normally people don't see disability as a political thing at all like it's a personal infliction based on your bodily impairment and it's about you and like how you can be cured or like help to be healed or to be made a bit better and so that idea of disability being I am disabled because I have chronic fatigue that would be a medical model of disability Um, and in like the first wave of disability activism um, disabled activists created the idea of the social model of disability to counteract that and the social model um, instead argues that disabled people are disabled because of their environments and because of the barriers that they experience in society. So for example, when I use a wheelchair, I am not disabled because I use my wheelchair or because of my condition, which means I have to use a wheelchair, but because like 
the space I'm trying to go into doesn't have a ramp or a lift or someone to help push me. Um, and so, yeah, I'm disabled by my environment rather than by me. Um, but the social model still had quite a lot of critiques. It was still very, I guess it's like the civil rights movement in compared to like waves of like organizing. So it made incredible improvements. It created disabled rights. It created equality legislation and that was all brilliant, but it doesn't, it didn't do justice. It still um, assumed that impairments were real biological facts that like, I still have an impairment and I am still basically broken but society isn't equipped to build, to care for my disabled body. Um, but in comparison to that, so then after that came what is happening now and what I think is like the forefront of disabled organizing is like intersectional disability justice, which centers, um, disabled people of colour and queer disabled people in their organising and is critically like refuting the idea of illness and impairment and just the whole thing and completely seeing it as inseparable from decolonization and from trans liberation and from like anti-capitalist politics like everything has to come together and then you see how they're all interlinked and like holding each other up and all these like power structures pre-rad things become possible to unpick so okay so just to just to recap um so that we're on the same page here so we've got kind of this medical model that says like individuals have impairments and they need some sort of like they're kind of personally responsible for um mm -hmm like making whatever adjustments they need to make um, to try to be like as quote normal as possible um, yeah. and kind of just like making up that gap so they can try to participate in like society without making having any accommodations and then you've got the social mm -hmm. model which kind of says um that like our our systems are designed in in certain ways that only make um, certain people able to show up um, fully and that actually it's the responsibility of the whole community to kind of make adjustments and to meet people where they're at um, mm -hmm. is that kind of yeah. yeah yeah and so it's like rather than saying like this person has an impairment and like they need to like kind of Change. figure that out for themselves it's like how can mm -hmm. we like make adjustments to our structures in order to like um allow more people to show up as they are yeah. and then you've got like disability justice which is like all about kind of like totally like turning upside down this idea that there's like like disabled and non-disabled and there's like that we're all kind of somewhere and that we all have different needs and um and things to contribute 
um, and just mm-hmm. totally like taking things inside out and and then having all these like principles that um, that were created by um, queer people of color, disabled people of color um, and queer and trans folks um, coming together to like dream of like revolutionary futures and like um, and cross movement solidarity and anti-capitalism and like allowing people who are most impacted um, by these issues to take leadership roles and relying on each other and things like that. Yeah, like I feel like it begins with like the idea of, I think it's, um, uh, what is what is her name? Um, it's my book, Leah, I've got it here somewhere. Leah Lakshmi, oh yeah, Leah Lakshmi Pietzna Sami Sahina. Um, she writes about um, Crip brilliance, and Crip is a disabled identified acronym or shortening of Cripple um, that's been reowned in a um, positive tone, in the same way that queer has with like LGBTQ folks. Um, and yeah, so. Um, the idea of crit brilliance being that we have really important knowledge as a result of our epistemological positioning. So by being disabled and being treated as such in the world, I have knowledge that I can share and like bring forward in our political aims that someone who hasn't had my experience wouldn't have had and wouldn't know how to share. And so like the gifts that being disabled gives you is Mm -hmm. like the starting point for disability justice I think to me yeah totally and I think like that's part of what we're hoping to talk about today um on the show is like how can all of us like learn from and like take um take leadership not take follow the leadership um of like disabled people in this like weird pandemic time that like suddenly we're all all our lives are kind of being recalibrated to like take new information in about like how to live and take care of each other um and so how can we like not just try to like reinvent the wheel for those of us who are like not currently disabled um and actually like listen to what has already been happening and how people have been living and like include them and center them and like yeah honor that that crip wisdom that's the dream yeah <laughs> okay maybe we'll listen to a song at this point um perhaps we'll start off with um this song called alone in this which is by uh, a Canadian musician who is Indigenous and gay. Um, And she's also an amputee. And um, her name is Krista Couture. Um, So this is Alone in This, and we will be right back. 
It was not just happenstance when I caught you hold my glance when we said goodbye and lingered with our hands. That was Alone in This by Krista Couture, which listeners, you are not alone in this. You are listening to Query on Kootenai Co-op Radio. I am joined today by a guest Indigo, and we are having a conversation about disability justice and knowledge in the midst of this COVID-19 situation. So what we wanted to get into next is a little bit about uh, what we were talking about before the song about, um, you know, how can those of us who are like consider ourselves to not be disabled at this time be learning from and like taking leadership from disabled folks who might have different experiences of social isolation or not having access to certain kinds of income or like having to just navigate the world in different ways in order to like take care of themselves and yeah so what is my question for you indigo what uh, what can you tell us about how like things you're noticing that um, non-disabled people may have been like experiencing for the first time that may be common experiences among disabled folks um, and like are is there anything that you're you're particularly noticing or feeling about what like our collective experience right now, like people staying home and like a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, um, I guess I could would start by saying that I couldn't speak for all disabled people because all of our experiences are gonna be so different and how one person lives in the world is entirely different to someone else's. But talking of my own, uh, um, so, I live with a number of conditions, which means that I have very limited amount of energy in one in any one day. Um, I can't walk for very far. I can't stand up for very long. Um, and so, in my normal day to day life, I often can't really go to the cafe, to the pub, to the bar. Um, I We'll find it very difficult going to the restaurant depending on what the seating is like. Um, if I'm using a wheelchair, which I do sometimes, sometimes not depending on my energy levels, um, whether I can actually get into the space to begin with is often a question. Um, equally, because of that, I spend a lot of time on my own in my house and in my bedroom. Um, and it can be incredibly isolating and lonely and not being able to see my friends and hold my loved ones and go out to the parties and the like other things that young folks want to do <laughs> um, can be so frustrating. Um, and so it's very weird suddenly everyone else being in the same boat as me. Um, and suddenly this becoming the norm for non-disabled people as well as disabled people with limited energies um and yeah um 
what was I going to say about that? Hmm. Um, <laughs> I think uh, something like that I have noticed in myself is just reflecting on, um, yeah, like how some of these things like are new for me, but thinking about how, how like common that experience may be to others, um, like before this pandemic happened. And, um, like I remember in the first week that I kind of learned about COVID and, um, and was like taking, you know, some precautions, um, I was feeling really like obsessive about washing my hands. Um, and like, in a way that was like actually anxiety inducing, like it was kind of like an obsessive compulsive type of behavior that I was like, like I was just noticing in myself, like, oh, I feel really uncomfortable. Like, oh, I just touched that thing. I like have to go wash my hands immediately. Um, or else I can't think about anything else. And like, I know that, um, you know, there's lots of folks who experience those kind of like thought spirals, um, like, yeah, outside of this and like as part of their life experience. And so it was kind of like a humbling moment for me when I was like, oh, wow, like I feel really like obsessive about this thing. And like for people that have, um, you know, ongoing mental health stuff going on, like that's, that's just life sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's like as someone who's on immunosuppressants and on, like low dose chemo it's like people often people often have to like my friends will let me know if they have a cold or a flu anyway so that I won't see them um and suddenly everyone else has to do that for themselves and they realize like how often people get sick (laughs) and how much that limits your ability to see people that you might want to otherwise um But I think it's also weird because equally the world has suddenly now, because everyone else is experiencing this, the world has got a lot more accessible for me. So my lectures are now being held adequately online and all the resources are actually finally being there. Um, I can go to the life drawing classes I wouldn't have been able to go to before. And I can life model for my own bedroom and people will think that that's acceptable um and I can go to parties which I think thing which I think was a thing that really got me because that was something I really missed as I got sicker but like being able to go to the disco and like see all these other people also in their bedrooms having loads of fun and like doing burlesque shows and playing fun music and chatting and I was like this it's frustrating because I know that as soon as this crisis is over, all these things that have suddenly made my life a lot more participatory are going to go away again. And as soon as the able people don't have to deal with it themselves, this access won't be there. Which is a bit pants really (laughs) (laughs) I mean I think 
I think though, like on the other hand, if we're gonna be like optimistic, um, that like there is this opportunity um for seeing what's possible and new things mm-hmm. becoming possible. Um and like of course, yeah, things will change and um and people will go back to partying in person, but like maybe there's a possibility that like this opens new doors um for people to be like, oh, like how can we be more inclusive? Um how can we like make our events more accessible? Um and like I hope that that happens. Um yeah. I hope that we like can learn from this experience. Um because it is like it's learned, you know, it's like um, a coworker was saying to me the other day, um, that she, um, she's had like Japanese exchange students living with her for many years. Um, and that like, it's culturally normal for them if they like have a cold or have a cough or something to wear a mask, um, so that they don't make other people around them sick. Um, and like, my coworker was just reflecting like that learning this from this person who like, that's just their cultural norm is like, we protect each other by like wearing this equipment so that we don't make more people sick. Um, and like specifically for, I guess, prioritizing people who are immunosuppressed to be able to be in community and like not be so worried that like someone's going to cough on them or touch something that they're going to touch. And then they're going to have, an even harder time like with that with that little cough that might not be a big deal for me but for another person is going to mean they're going to be sick for like a month or two yeah I think there is so much opportunity in this really difficult situation for us to learn more ways about caring for each other and more ways of like increasing our general accessibility of how we interact with one another and yeah you're right like I also do think that so many disabled people have so much knowledge about how to deal with social isolation how to work from home effectively how to do activities that have that are limited and are within one building and I think yeah if we are able to center those experiences and follow them then I think people will also like get through this difficulty a lot better Mm. that knowledge is already there people aren't don't have to start creating it from the scratch you know Mm -hmm. um it's just often hard to prioritize that knowledge I think it's interesting too like um yeah I don't know what's happening in the UK with like employment benefits and stuff for people who have lost their jobs um but one thing that I have found like frustrating but also like like it's complicated, but basically 
the Canadian government has like rolled out this like new emergency response benefit um, that they're going to give people like who've lost work due to COVID um, like $2,000 a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, that's great. You know, like government response to crisis, like great. Give people who've lost income money. Um, but like, disability benefits aren't $2,000 a month. Like, I can tell you Mm -hmm. that. Like, I think I could actually look it up right now, but I'm pretty sure, like, it's maybe half of that. Um, And so it, it, to me, that's, it's, like, very telling um, that it's kind of like, okay, so, like, people who are able to work and lose their jobs are, like, should be able to get $2,000 a month, but, like, a person who has a disability that like impacts their ability to like complete like daily tasks is only worth like $900 a month or like $1,100 a month. Um, yeah. Like, like, like this is the same thing in the UK as well. And it's like, it's because it's not even about the people who have lost their jobs. It's about the economy. Like the governments are just trying to stop their own economy from crashing rather than actually protecting the people who they're meant to be caring for so so abled people who already have jobs produce profit for the government and the company the country companies and the organizations when but disabled people who may not be in work or are seen as less productive to society and therefore of less value don't deserve as much money according to like the ableist industrial complexes of our world yeah um yeah anyway that made me really mad when i found that out i'm like i'm glad people are getting money but like why can't disability benefits be at this rate you know and so there's a part of me that hopes that this like sets some sort of precedent like politically for um for like you know disability activists to say well you know you gave every Canadian $2,000 a month. Like, are you saying you can't do yeah. that? Because like, because why? Um, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I like. I'm saying this and it's like our governments are being forced to do incredibly socialist things, even with like very conservative leadership, because that's what is necessarily needed right now. And I feel like once we've seen that the government can give these like, enough money to survive to all people to like to so much more of the population that they can give them like beds to sleep in that they do have the capacity to actually support people people are gonna be like why are why are we exp- uh, why are we settling for less mm-hmm. and yeah in the uk as well um the bill that went through to um put through all the emergency emergency, uh, measures for COVID-19 also stopped the government's um, obligation to support disabled people in their caring responsibilities because local governments might not have the infrastructure to do so while they're dealing with everything else but it's like so you aren't gonna support disabled people in existing all right, so how about we pause for a song? Next up, we are going to listen to Do Whatever the Heck You Want by Ray Spoon, 
who is a non-binary musician and author. And just so you know, listeners, this episode of Query, we are focusing on playing the music of queer folks who have some sort of experience with disability, whether that's a physical or mental health related experience. So Ray Spoon is a person who writes a lot about mental health challenges and uh, I really like this song vibe of do whatever the heck you want and don't tell anybody else what the heck to do because you're only the boss of you and that's how we should be doing it. So here's Ray Spoon. Should I be a man or a Welcome back. That was Ray Spoon. Do whatever the heck you want. And you are listening to Query, the queerest hour on Cooney Co-op Radio. Uh, today we are talking to a beloved queer, Indigo, uh, about all sorts of things uh, related to disability and COVID-19. Oh, I wanted to ask you about like mutual aid and to, to kind of talk about like You've been doing some research into this for your thesis, dissertation, what are you, whatever you're writing, some, yeah. some scholarly <laughs> thing, some, some zine uh, <laughs> for the academy. Um, but I think, yeah, like, I guess to open this up, like, here in Nelson, um, there's a group that's that's been created called Nelson Helps and they are on Facebook and it's seems to be just like a network of people who are trying to help each other out and so people are posting like requests if they need someone to do some grocery shopping for them because they're like having to self-isolate after traveling or because they're elderly or at a higher risk of um, bad stuff happening. <laughs> um so that's kind of popped up um and yeah I'm not like I don't really know the people who are organizing it or like what their politics are but um the idea of like mutual aid and um care networks um like spring out of disabled communities and like people um prioritizing each other um rather Mm -hmm. than like capitalist models of of relating. Um, so any nuggets of wisdom from your research? And um, yeah, um, it's funny because I actually only started properly researching this area after coming and visiting you in Nelson um, in the summer and all maybe yet and seeing it, I think it was on Facebook, there was a spoon, there was a spoon share um group set up on facebook um i don't know if it's still running um which was so spoons are a describer of energy used in chronic illness communities so 
you might have four spoons a day um, in this metaphor and one spoon might take to have a shower, one spoon to cook a meal, one spoon to do an activity. And depending on your fatigue levels and your energy levels, your amount of spoons that you have in a day changes. Um, and so a spoon share is the idea of someone basically lending you a spoon, someone doing a food shop for you and cooking a meal, um, doing like a practical support or emotional support for you that you don't have the capacity to do and explicitly doing it in an anti-capitalist exchange without like exchanging money. So I wouldn't necessarily give you a massage if I need one from you, but I might give someone else some emotional support or I might be able to drive someone to the supermarket. And so then we like swap and change our ways of caring for each other. And this is like a very significant part of disability justice and ideas of interdependence, which yeah, is what I'm writing my thesis zine on. Um, and it's been very exciting to be trying to write this whilst all these mutual aid groups have jumped up everywhere. Um, like in the UK, for example, and even in London, every single borough now has got a mutual aid group of neighbours and community members volunteering to, yeah, like Nelson Helps. Nelson Helps? Yeah, Nelson Helps. Nelson Helps. Um, like them offering to deliver groceries, do batch cooking, do other things you might need if they're in isolation. And this is a group that, and Mutual Aid UK explicitly has, I'm pretty sure, come out of disabled community and has just spread up everywhere in this crisis. And it's brilliant. It's so exciting um, because this is how we have to relate to each other. This is how we do. And I think we pretend as if we can all be totally independent and have like the American dream where we can do it all, all on our own and totally self-sufficient, but it's a fallacy, it's a myth. Um, we all rely on one another for so much and we can't exist in isolation, total isolation. And I think that by, yeah, by like, if you are able to help each other out at this time and you do have a car or you do um are less like are not immunosuppressed or not elderly being able to support your neighbors and get to know each other and being able to give without an assumption of getting something in return is a really good valued practice and a value that hopefully people will carry on practicing after this is over yeah i hope so I hope that those those care networks stay in place. Yeah. I think this is a, yeah, it is a truly special time to be envisioning new futures outside of like day-to-day capitalist business as usual. Because mm-hmm. it's just not available. Yeah. Um, Very unique opportunity to like, dream of what 
create brilliant futures could look like. Yeah, totally. And we had like a bunch of um, resources that we wanted to share as well around that. I mean, um, like you'd already mentioned, Leah Lakshmi, Piepsna, Samarasina, um, and like their book, Care Work, is a really beautiful compilation of essays um, around um, yeah, all of these things that we're talking about and like how we can, how we can take care of each other um, and like, and the work that, you know, um, queer and trans disabled people of color, especially have been doing to, um, yeah, ensure our survival. Um, and so that's a good, a good one. Um, also, um, Sins Invalid. Um, is a, a performing artist group of disabled folks um, who are super rad and they uh, they wrote a um, an article that has a bunch of different experiences of disabled people within um, the COVID-19 thing and um and they also have a resource list that i really recommend um that has a bunch of different things on it um that's on there and i think i think it's called social distancing is disability justice or something yeah and like because they are like the founding people of disability justice as a thing mm -hmm. um and are just super excellent human beings oh. Yeah, are they like because I have that the disability justice principles were were written by the disability justice collective activists such as Patty Byrne, Leroy Moore, Mia Mingus, Sebastian Margaret, and Eli Clare. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, and a lot of also like related to Sims Invalid or like yeah. there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, a lot of the same people are in the same both collectives and were doing similar things at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um and I'd also, on the resource list, I'd also recommend Eli Clare's book, um, Brilliant Imperfection, Grappling with Cure, as a really accessible personal essays and exploration of, yeah, cure as an idea and how he understands his body as a trans disabled man who um, experiences a lot of oppression and has learned to have so much love for his body as it is. Um, and then also, I've forgotten her name. Her Instagram is um, hotcrip, at hotcrip. Um, and she's a Canadian artist who is also um, immunosuppressed and disabled and she makes a lot of good accessible memes which I really appreciate at this time um, and she's writing a lot and discussing a lot about COVID-19 and the experiences of disabled and immunosuppressed communities um, and is a very good one to follow. Hmm. Thanks for that recommendation. <laughs> um, one of the resources that, um, yeah, I, I wanted to like share and talk about, I guess, is um, 
comes from this uh, person named Clementine Morgan, who uh, writes a lot about trauma and um, attachment and polyamory and um, and queerness and like intersections of those things and um, and they like recently posted about you know how humans are have evolved to like be socially connected um, and that like not having that social connection is traumatic um, and so also like posted another thing about um, what kinds of touch people can access for those of us who have that as like an important love language and suggested things like self-touch which like in my learning about somatic counseling um, can be a really supportive therapeutic thing to just like hold yourself to wrap your arms around yourself or like even you can do like a heart hug which involves putting your right hand um, kind of on your heart like under your heart and then wrapping uh, so your heart is on your left side so if you take your right hand and you put it across your body um, then you kind of have it and then you take your left arm and you kind of hug your your right arm and press down on your hand a little bit that's a nice self-touch if you are isolating without without buddies but yeah, that importance of like social connection and like, yeah, checking in. I mean, we should be checking in with each other anyway all the time. And I feel like that's one thing I've really noticed over the last couple of weeks is like, I've heard from people that like, I don't really hear from very often, like people, friends and like acquaintances have reached out to be like, how are you doing? And I'm like, oh, thanks for checking in. <laughs> so that's nice. Um, trying to maintain those like webs. Um, just telling people that you care is so nice and people just deciding to reach out to you and like ask you what the good thing about your day was so that's definitely been really helpful to me and just like also people sending me like pictures of their pets um even if I don't get to cuddle them myself it's also <laughs> really really helpful I find um yeah to do that pals <laughs> I wonder if we could like dive into some of these like heavier topics of like some of the like attitudes of that like I have like not necessarily experienced or witnessed myself um but of folks who are kind of just like and governments who like haven't responded um because it's like well who is most at risk like elderly folks and disabled folks like oh well too bad or whatever and this idea of like who is worth saving and these like ethical issues that we're grappling with so um if you're open to that yeah very open for that All uk right. government has been let's chat about it you're listening to query and we are about to have some real talks about <laughs> medical ethics and uh and also like political ethics of like who is valuable in our society and like what is being unveiled at this time um about you know whose lives are worth and like what are they worth um yeah so what what's you had mentioned the uk government has <laughs> pretty much is bleh. um yes the uk government originally was 
um, following this idea of herd immunity, which would involve a, a very high percentage of the population getting COVID-19 and recovering from it. But with the like unstated fact that therefore a lot of people wouldn't recover from it and would die. And that was just a way that we would get through it very quickly. But that allows for and acknowledge and like legitimizes the idea that those who are most vulnerable in our society aren't gonna make it through and that's just the facts of life that immunocompromised people that people with um diabetes with asthma people who are over certain age whatever it is they're saying now um that our lives are somehow worth less or just a logical like un unfortunate but necessary consequence of this pandemic um and even when the uk government have now changed their policy and aren't we're now doing social distancing as well to try and limit the amount of people who get it um certain GP practices in the UK have sent out do not resuscitate letters to um, vulnerable people and ask them to sign these waivers so that if they do get sick they won't be given medical treatment so that those spaces can be potentially left open for younger fitter individuals who have a higher chance of surviving and yeah with like the guidelines for who should be given treatment if we um get to a stage where all the beds are filled like who gets prioritized and who doesn't i think these questions are coming up and people who don't have lived experiences of being disabled of having long-term health conditions who aren't elderly are making decisions that our lives are worth less or that we don't have the right same right to be protected as someone who doesn't have these conditions ugh that is so terrible yeah and it is like I feel like people are going to be like, wow, it's really your, it's unfortunate, but it's, you know, the reality and like someone has to make a decision and like, it's just statistics, but like, this is how arguments of eugenics continue. Like when it's, because it's not just about the individual doctors having to make the hard decision because it's bigger than that because it's a fact that like our governments have all like underfunded healthcare that we don't have enough um uh medical equipment to support the amount of people who will get sick that we don't have enough hospital beds in the uk that we don't have enough nurses and doctors because we don't fund them and like pay them enough and so it's political and it's economic and it's undervaluing healthcare and sick people's right to exist in our society. Which Are you is, there? 
Yeah, I'm okay. here. I'm just like sitting with that and it's like, oh my god, I have nothing, you know, <laughs> like I'm just kind of like, wow, you know, this is like, like consequence and like you know, problem solver me wants to come in and be like, well, what can I do about it? Like, how can I fix it? Like, um, or like what needs to be organized? I mean, like our whole society needs to be reorganized. <laughs> really, but it's like, it's, it's hard to do in this moment, but also, you know, really important to, to just have that out there of like, why don't we see all lives as you know, inherently valuable and, and worthy of access to basic human rights. Um, and like, because of this, I've seen um, in like disabled groups online, people who are very worried and they've created um, hospital passports, which are usually um, often used by people with um learning disabilities and to like say what their modes of communication or their like preferences are when they're in medical treatment and like they're having to write down and limit their what their conditions are so they won't be seen as as disposable and like trying to humanize themselves on this document to be like I'm a human being with value and with relationships and who has important in the world so that if a doctor is standing there trying to decide who's going to get it they don't automatically go oh well that person you know looks sicker they look you know they already use a breathing tube they already have these other stuff going on so they can't actually be as valued well and i mean i guess I guess the thing is that, like, that's this idea that social distancing is disability justice or, like, is um, solidarity because I guess the idea is that, like, um, those hospital beds should be reserved for people who are most impacted and, like, most at risk of developing complications and um you know like if we're staying home and like reducing the transmission then like they should be they should be available yeah um, you're keeping beds free for people who will get a lot sicker if they do catch it as well yeah it's really like a time for thinking about like who is most marginalized and how can how can we support the systems that are like already overloaded because of capitalist priorities yeah and that's not to blame the like medical professionals and the people the frontline staff doing their jobs and having to make impossibly hard decisions that i can't even imagine doing like i have so much respect for people doing that work and but like they're also human beings and they exist inside a medical industrial complex and they are going to have their own biases you know in the way that 
in the same way that like feminized pain is under treated and in the way that people of color receive disproportionately um, negative medical treatment or are treated a lot worse in medical contexts than like white people. And so though, and the biases exist to like disabled people as well. So like when medical people are making decisions or how they're treating people in those situations, these things are going to come into play. And yeah, so I just think as non-disabled people, like reducing the amount of people that are going to have to be in that situation is, yeah, an excellent act of solidarity, like staying at home is saving lives. Yeah, totally. And like, yeah, doing doing research and like checking out some of the resources that we've mentioned during the show um, and yeah, just reading up on these mutual aid care webs and and if you're able to be of support, then then doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of wrapping up our show here. Um, any final thoughts for the the people, the listeners, the query loves? I think yeah. I think my final thoughts are about access as love, um, which is. An idea brought, brought forward by Mia Mingus. Um, I haven't got a document, so I don't know the names of people from the document if you have it there. Oh, yeah, it is Mia Mingus. Uh, oh, and Alice Wong. Yeah. And Sandy Ho. And Sandy Ho, yeah. Um, and Access is Love is the idea that, yeah, that by providing access for each other by an access right now means you know not going out by um doing care work for each other in ways that you can you it's not a burden it's not labor that you have to do and that you should regret like or just feel find it exhausting and only doing it because you feel like you have to actually giving other people their ability to exist in the world is the most beautiful thing and it's love and it's friendship and it's community and it's yeah it's just really lovely um and when we can meet each other's needs and produce access for each other in a way that isn't pitying and isn't charity work that often dehumanizes the individuals who are trying to help. I think that the people getting the help can get agency and feel empowered and you can create this beautiful act of intimacy, like the act of intimacy that I have with Axel. Like when you hold my hand and you let me lead in front so that I decide how fast we're walking. I tell people about that a lot of the time. It's a very nice thing. 
Yeah, I don't know. I think one of the things like I've learned from you is just, you know, the huge value in slowing down. Mm-hmm. And like, we all have this opportunity. Well, maybe not all of us, because I know some people are still um, doing essential work. Um, and probably that's very stressful. And, um, and yeah, there's care there needed too. But like for those of us who do have the privilege of being able to slow down right now and and be intentional and you know use our energy in ways that fill us up and that fill up those around us is really precious and um yeah i appreciate having had many opportunities to slow down with you indigo and i'm very grateful that you could come on the show and share your many beautiful thoughts with our listeners do it from my own bed so I mean do not mind at all (laughs) okay well thanks for listening to this uh latest installment of query much love to you all take care of yourselves take care of each other